Welcome back to the Megawatt Hour, a podcast box set series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. In this series, we'll be examining how energy storage technologies are reshaping, reinforcing, and recharging energy markets in the UK and further afield. This episode sees us take a closer look at the role of finance and investment in the battery storage sector, exploring how investors and companies deploy capital, what makes a bankable project, whether expectations are changing with the maturing market, and perhaps most importantly, what investors expect to see in return. I'm Andrew Dykes, content editor at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I'm delighted to welcome back my co-host, David Bevan, corporate finance partner at BDO, who also leads the group's renewable energy practice in the UK. We're also joined today by Nicholas Beatty, a founder and director at Zenobi. Zenobi designs, finances, builds, and operates a network of battery storage assets, electric vehicle fleets, and infrastructure, with the aim of developing a fully circular battery economy. Founded in 2017, the company has raised more than half a billion pounds in funding and now has growing operations in the UK, Australia, New Zealand and the Benelux states. And Nicholas is going to explain a little bit more about that journey today. So before we get too into the nitty gritty, um, I thought we should start with some first principles again. Um, David, I've been listening diligently to the Megawatt Hour all year. I've decided that I want to invest in this energy storage thing that I've heard so much about. Um, how, how do I go about doing that? Andrew, there are lots of different options, fortunately. I guess to start with, as, as an individual, as a homeowner, if you are a homeowner, you've already got some pretty easy options to invest directly in various types of storage. So there are battery storage systems on the market for, for home use. There are hot water cylinders, advanced hot water cylinders that allow you to store heating, etc. Um, and these are becoming increasingly sophisticated and, and, and able to interface with solar generation and other devices like heat pumps around the home so in fact we're going to cover some of that in a, in a later later episode in the series but if you're a financial investor looking for you know, dividends returns capital growth um, there are also lots of options in an increasing number um, I guess the first one to start with is, is you know you can invest in shares um, on stock market listed entities through brokers or investment platforms and Good examples of those are listed investment trusts. So these specialize in um, utility scale battery storage. And there are at least three of those, um, to my knowledge, it's Gore Street, Gresham House and Harmony, who are focused wholly on utility scale battery storage in the UK. Um, these are vehicle. These investment trusts are vehicles which raise money, and they they buy invest. They use that money to invest in a portfolio of of, of, of assets, and and their funds are managed by a specialist investment manager for for a fee, effectively. And in fact, we we heard from um, Ben Guest from Gresham earlier earlier on in the series. There are also a lot of other renewables funds um, and infrastructure funds, which um, you know they may in the past have invested in solar or wind or, or other kinds of generation assets. And for one reason or another, they are starting to invest in storage, um, sometimes just to understand the, um, the sector a little bit more because it, it sits quite neatly with um, what they're already doing. Um, but also, you know, the fact that nowadays when, when people develop solar farms, they often apply for planning consent for, for a battery storage facility alongside because it just makes kind of economic sense to do that. So those guys are an increasingly an option for exposure to battery storage. There are also obviously a wide range of other listed vehicles which um, you know, range from really small entities, you know, on AIM and so on, who are trying to develop different chemical um, uh, compound systems for, for, for batteries, different electrochemical batteries. Um, and also you've got the really large listed energy companies, you know, the SSEs and uh, Centricas of this world, who also 
have some exposure and some involvement in storage, but you're obviously you, you, a lot's coming along with that um, if you're if you're um, investing in in those kinds of uh, entities. So those are the listed companies. There are obviously also a lot of private funds that, um, by their nature, are slightly less visible uh, to you and I, and and they're more targeted at specialist investors, um, usually with fairly significant resources, and they typically form sort of limited partners in in um, private equity type funds that invest in um, battery storage. And then finally, I guess there are the you know, numerous private companies, both large and small, um, which aren't listed at all and which are developing, um, owning assets. And Zenobi's a, a fantastic example um, of, of a corporate uh, that's operating in this space. Um, and um, you know, we're lucky enough to, to have Nicholas with us um, today on this uh, section of the podcast. That's a great spot to introduce you, Nicholas. And yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about Zenobi and, and what it is you do? Yes, by all means. So uh, my name is Nicholas Beattie and I'm one of um, three founders at Zenobi. Um, Zenobi is a business that we started in 2017. Uh, and it's a business that's focused really on two main activities, one of which is, um, as David's already mentioned, um, investing in, in storage, large scale storage across the grid currently in the UK, um, providing services to National Grid. Um, balancing services, power services, and so on. Uh, the other part of the business is on the fleet side, where we are the largest uh, owner and operator of electric um, buses here in the UK. We provide them to the major operators like National Express, um, First Group, Go Ahead, etc., that are well known. And we provide those as a service, and we provide the charging in the depots and uh, the batteries themselves and, and, and the buses. Um, so that they can optimize the operation of those vehicles. Um, in addition to that, we have a developing second life um, business, which is effectively taking the batteries off the vehicles and then putting them into um, new boxes so that they can be deployed into a second life activity, which generally means displacing diesel generation. Um, and our fourth leg is the one that really brings everything together, which is the development of software within the business so that we can optimize all these assets. So that's sort of where, where we are as a business. Um, and I can obviously go into further detail in the, under each of those um, subheadings if that's, if that's of interest to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I was interested in, obviously, founded in 2017, were, were all those uh, prongs of that strategy kind of present when you, you kind of created the company or, or was some of it happened organically? You know, how did that process work? That's a very good point. Actually, our um, very long-suffering uh, investors um, started with a business that they thought, which we thought when we started it, was going to um, purely add batteries and own batteries that were connected onto the grid which could then uh, be built up into a portfolio and that we then fully expected to sell on to a larger player in the market, um, such as you know, a Centricor or a Shell or whoever. Um, in the event, um, we found that the initial contracts that we had with, with the batteries in 2017 through to sort of 2019, the original values were sort of 19 to 20 pounds a megawatt hour. So each of the batteries could generate somewhere around 200,000 pounds of income per annum per, per megawatt. Um, and we found that those contract values were dropping very quickly 
Um, we'd made a decision early on, though, that we didn't want to just be deploying batteries, buying them and, and, and financing them and sticking them in fields, um, that we realized that we needed to really understand how these assets worked and, and as I said earlier, to, to optimize their use. So we did make an early stage decision to invest in developing our own software and actually our own hardware so that we could control these assets, dispatch them, monitor them much more effectively than was available in the market at the time. And that gave us an edge against our competitors. It also gave us an opportunity to look at, as the value of those contracts and the, the tenor on those contracts began to fall, to look around and think about where else the skills that we developed could be applied. And that's when um, we started uh, looking at ADL, um, Alexander Dennis, the big uh, bus manufacturer here in the UK, um, to help them and their customers electrify their fleets. And they had problems which, frankly, uh, were able to be ad uh, addressed by the deployment of batteries. First one was the amount of power that was available in the depots, which was really not enough to support the electrification of fleets. So as an example, our first contract was at Guildford, where Stagecoach had a, co had a contract with the town council to supply nine buses to provide park and ride services um, but they only had a 200 kilowatt feed into that actual depot to be able to support the nine buses that they bought from Alexander Dennis which between them had three megawatt hours of batteries they had to charge those up every night when the buses were stationary in the depot they couldn't do that with the 200 kilowatt feed and uh, they asked the local DNO how much it would cost to upgrade that feed into the depot um, up to 500 kilowatts and the, the cost was going to be anything between two to three million patents and it would have taken up to two maybe even longer years to take place so that really wouldn't have helped them so they turned to us and we said that we could do it um, we installed a stationary battery it's a very simple business model um, at the depot which was a tesla battery it was a 500 kilowatt battery um, and that battery charged up during the day when the buses were out on the routes. It also then provided additional services to the grid that we were providing with our larger batteries in any case. Um, and then in the evening, when the buses came in, the first two buses would have been able to be charged off the connection onto the grid. But once you plugged in the third bus, you needed to start draw down the power from the stationary battery in the depot, the Tesla battery. And that then became the basis for our, um, if you like, our fleet um, business. And that has been very successful. Um, that Guildford project has worked very well. The cost is about 20% compared to what the capital of expenditure would have been um, if they'd gone for a grid upgrade. Uh, and we have used that as the basis. And now we've got 25 depots um, where we're operating um, buses for and, and have the charging systems in place. We're building a 30, further 21 depots out, including the largest one uh, in Australia. And we've gone on to look at the fleet sector at, at buses again because they were the largest asset that became available in electrification of fleet. Um, and we're supporting uh, the buses themselves because we provide the batteries on the bus as a service. Again, we provide that on the basis that um, they that is they pay a monthly charge for that battery. We put our software on the battery and we're able to monitor and optimize the use the battery on the bus so that it, it will last as long as possible and then come to be replaced. And we also provide the financing of the chassis of the vehicle. So we provide the, the whole 
financing structure around it as well. So that was how we sort of developed the business. As I said, um, it's been uh, a very interesting and, and quite a, a fast-moving development for a, for a company that's only about six years old now. Um, but that's how we started with that battery technology and how we've spread it into a different area and how we continue to look for other opportunities, for instance, in the maritime sector and other sectors where we can apply our skills and knowledge. So your fleet business is there for um, providing the buses, the, the batteries on the buses, the, the, the sort of buffer battery in the charging infrastructure in the bus depot. So it's a, it's a complete service. And do you, do you retain sort of control over those, um, or certainly the, the buffer asset? Um, you mentioned earlier that you, that you use, sometimes you use the, the, the battery for other sort of ancillary services similar to the ones in, in your utility scale portfolio you use those uh, the batteries for those when they're not needed for, for charging the buses so do you, you control all of that do you you sort of um, tell the battery what to do and uh, what services to to deliver yes that so that's very much as i said you know the, the the glue if you like across the group it sounds like it's a quite a disparate group is very much uh the software element um and being able to monitor and and optimize the use of of the various assets so we provide all these things um, on an operational basis so what we're not doing is installing them and then selling them to a third party and walking away and saying you know if there's a problem if it's under guarantee give us a ring and we'll come back and fix it this is a very technically um, onerous sector you know you've got to bear in mind that looking at the fleet side these operators on fleet um, businesses depot-based fleet businesses have been spending hundreds of years looking at vehicles that are diesel and then they've suddenly had to look at diesel hybrid vehicles and now suddenly they're being asked to look at electric or possibly um, hydrogen as a way of going to zero emissions well the the range of things that they need to look at to have a successful electrification of a depot is far beyond what they have as their technical capability within their groups however large they are and we're talking about quite large companies as you know david so you've got to start with understanding what power is available and can you upgrade the power that's available from the local grid to, to meet your needs, um, to expand. Maybe there's a stage one where you might have 20 or 30 vehicles in the depot, but there may be 200 overall. So you might start with 20, 30 vehicles to be electrified. So you've got to understand that. You've got to then understand um, how do you go about optimizing that electrification? That may well be actually, we do a lot of work around, for instance, the um, parking analysis. How do you analyze where the vehicles are actually going to be parked so that you can churn the vehicles through the day so that the first vehicle going out in the morning isn't always the first vehicle going out the next morning and things like that. So you need to optimize that. It sounds quite simple things to look at but you do require data scientists who have you know um, the understanding around python and things like that um, and we've been writing our own software in order to achieve that we then do the design for for the actual depots for the customer um, we then do the tendering out to electrical contractors who will then come in and build the the actual depot so that may well be, as I said, a stepping stone of a 20 or 30 vehicles. So you start with that. They come in. We have a project manager who's responsible for that. That might include a stationary battery or it may not at this stage. But obviously, if we're thinking ahead, we're probably putting in much larger wires 
than would be required just to do 20 or 30 buses. You might have much larger copper wires because you don't want to have to dig everything up that you put in on the first phase of the development. And then you've got to think about, well, do you want to put solar on the roof? Because that might help you reduce your electricity bills. Then you've got the um, operation of the charging equipment with the software. How do you optimize that? As I said, you've got the vehicles themselves. We put the software on the vehicles so that the software on the vehicles can communicate with the charging equipment. So we can, again, optimize that charging, optimize the use of power while the vehicles are out on the route as well. Um, and also take data that can help the operator um, optimize his use of the vehicle. So, for instance, um, we do now driver training as part of what we can offer the customer. Um, and that driver training has shown that we can reduce the use of electrical power by between 25 and 35 percent um, by training the drivers, because it's a very different thing having an electric vehicle compared to an internal combustion engine vehicle. And that means that they're all saving money from the electrical power, but they're saving money from the amount of uh, braking that they do. So, you know, the amount of wear on the on the brake pads is something like 0.25% of what it was previously if you're driving around a diesel vehicle, which is a hell of a change, as you could probably hear. And that means that the vehicles are going to last longer. So every, it's a very, I hope I've given you an impression, it's a very complex um, subject and um, you know it requires us being able to pull together people with lots of different skills and then obviously on top of that David we've got the um, financing capability within the business to structure that and reduce the cost of the financing and also the structuring of the contract so that we can provide those assets the battery on the bus and the charging equipment as services not as um, operating leases which means that we hold them on our balance sheet rather than on the customer's balance sheet, which again provides additional financial benefits alongside all the engineering benefits. You mentioned at the, the beginning there, Nicholas, your, your investors. I think it's fair to say a lot of this work has kind of been organic and you, you've kind of come into it and, and it's expanded from there. Could you maybe talk about the, the fundraising journey and, and the journey with your investors and explaining all this to them as you've kind of grown out? Yes, absolutely. Well, I'll go, I'll go one step back, Andrew, if you don't mind. So, Of course. Um, I said, you know, my, my career was at Ambrose Bank and um, then I went to BNP Paribas and then there was a financial crisis and I left there and I built some solar farms at home. And I built solar farms at home because the bloke next door wanted to put up a wind farm. So um, I got a lot more support for putting up a solar farm than I did putting up a wind farm. And then we got involved in, in the batteries. So it was nice to have a common common enemy in that respect um, but what was interesting was I got the you know pulled together the private financing for doing the um, these solar farms and then we put the batteries on as, as um, Dave was saying earlier that improved the, the quality of the assets and that's how I got into this industry so I was very convinced by putting my own money where my mouth was if you like in that first iteration quite early on uh, those was you know some of the first batteries in the UK at the time um, and I could see that there was a really interesting opportunity for um, batteries in the future. They were very, very small at that point. They were only, you know, they were being used for um, just the balancing and, and so on. But obviously now things and technologies have moved on and we can see that. So we, when we started this business, we went around the infrastructure funds in the city in 2016. Uh, and we tried to raise capital for them for this business plan where we were going to have 150 megawatt hours, whatever it was, of assets originally. And we got secured four megawatt hours of 
batteries to be able to purchase once we had the funding from a developer called Anesco, who was the one who'd actually built my uh, solar farms at, at home. Anyhow, cut a long story short, the infrastructure funds are much more difficult to get money out of, or they were in those days than they are now. And obviously with just a, a couple of sheets of paper and um, some nice ideas, it, they, they didn't, it didn't work. Uh, so luckily we had a fallback position, which was friends and family. And also because these other assets have worked quite well, we had a group of people who were interested in, in decarbonization and what was going on in that side. So we were able to pull together um, by the summer of uh, 2017, 25 and a half million pounds to start the business. And we, I think this is an important consideration because once you start getting into the world of institutional investors, they tend to disregard the important risks that these angel investors are prepared to take on to really pump prime these uh, sectors. And, and, you know, we'd lost the capability to use the old EIS, SEIS structure. Um, because energy was not considered to be an area that would get some government support in that. But despite that, we managed to raise really what I think is, is quite a decent sum of money. And it was the thing that enabled us to, to build um, the, uh, buy the first four megawatts and build another 10, 10 megawatts with, with Unesco. So we had 14 megawatts of uh, batteries by the end of the summer 2017. And we had enough cash to continue to be able to operate without eating um, equity, which is important. It also enabled us to say to our first uh, institutional investor, which was an American uh, fund called Tiger Infrastructure Partners, early stage infrastructure fund, they wanted to put 20 million pounds into us and they did in October 2017. Um, we were able to demonstrate that what we said we were going to do, we would actually do. And, and so it was that we went on and now we've raised 220 million pounds of equity of which 150 million pounds came in from, uh, ironically, from uh, InfraCapital, who we approached in 2016. Um, but they put 150 million pounds into the company in November 2020. So the growth's been rapid, um, and we seem to have quite a lot of interest, which is which is great news. Um, but we can see, you know, now we're, it's big checks that that we need from from large investors that can take us. And it's not just money. We, were, we need an investor or investors who will take us into North America, where we've started a lot of work, whereas you're well aware Joe Biden has, has uh, passed the IRA, which is, I think, over £360 billion pounds of support for decarbonization in, in the States. And a lot of that is going into energy and into transit area as well. Um, and we also need more support for what we're doing in Australia, which is growing at, at a significant rate. And it's good. with the change of government there, there's more focus on decarbonisation there as well. And we also, um, on the fleet side, uh, last year, and we drew down against this in February, developed the first private placement for uh, supporting, for, for debt to support um, our fleet business. So. We, we started by doing receivable financing on the fleet side. We had about 70 million pounds worth of receivable financing by the end of December last year. And we refinanced that with this private place platform that we put together, which enabled us to get longer term finance about 16 years and includes um, Aviva and Scottish Widows as institutions who supported us in that. Um, and that means that we've got now access to longer term debt on the fleet side, um, the, we've hedged that, and the um, the actual rates on on that uh, transaction were 
uh, very strong and positive and has helped us grow further in, in that side of the business. So we're always looking, you know, it's not just on the engineering side that we're looking to optimize what we can offer our customers, but we want to work as well on the financing and the structuring side um, to be able to optimize what we can offer the customers. It's a complete offering uh, without being good at the finance, you're not going to get the contract, um, however good you are at the engine on the engineering and support side. And, and that's very much the case the other way around too. Um, that's a great place to take a quick break. Um, and we'll be right back after this. To uncover the full story behind the numbers, you need analytics. But more than that, you want people who will harness their experience, intelligence and insight to interpret the raw data. BDO's UK Renewables practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies and from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the breadth of our expertise enables us to understand the challenges faced by our renewables clients. We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, which is essential in such a dynamic and evolving sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global, and we are proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed renewables infrastructure funds, both with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realise your business potential. BDO. More than a numbers machine. So Nicholas, we've talked a little bit about um, the sort of equity financing journey you've been on. Um, would you say, I mean, given your success, would you say the banks are generally now comfortable lending into utility scale battery storage projects? Is that something you see a lot of now? Um, I think that the, the banks are getting more comfortable. I mean, there's absolutely no question that the banks um, recognise that they got to play their part in the government's um, need to to see more decarbonisation, that they got to be financing more decarbonisation and so on. Um, we obviously have seen that with the invasion of Ukraine, there is a little bit of a, a sort of, if you, perhaps a little bit more realistic view about what they can and cannot do in the current environment. Um, and that, you know, there's no question that you can't just turn around and say, okay, I'm not going to finance any more carbon extraction or businesses involved in carbon extraction. That just doesn't work. It is going to be a gradual move across, but people need to be kept under pressure. Um, otherwise, you know, we're going to find a lot, it's going to be uh, difficult to meet the targets that governments have put into their own legislation and regulation. So banks are very much part of that whole process. And what we've seen is that when we started in 2017, we never wanted to be an equity-based business. We wanted to have the balance between equity and, and debt so we could drive down our total cost of capital. Um, and obviously, um, we, we started off by having conversations with banks that we thought would be supportive. Now, the ones that we spoke to at that point in time in the UK, there were three banks that really were supportive in this segment on the high street basis, which were NatWest, Lloyds and, and Santander. So we engaged in conversations with them. Um, you know, it took a bit of time for them to uh, to see what we could offer them in terms of um, building their confidence, in terms of going back to what I said about Tiger, which was, you know, what we said we were going to do, we actually did. And that's an extremely important part of what banks look for. So we did eventually 
get um, a financing which was led by Santander. We've done six um, financing of batteries with Santander and that's six uh, sites we've done um, and, and that's been a very successful relationship between us and Santander we believe uh, particularly as the, the batteries are making quite a lot of money at the moment um, so I don't think the, the banks won't be losing their bonus at the end of this year as a consequence but now we're in the process of seeing that there's a lot more interest so we're as I mentioned already in the process to raise an additional 220 million pounds with a sort of 400 million accordion um, alongside that and we've had a lot of interest from banks um, not just the ones that I've mentioned the, the traditional banks in the UK but other banks from Europe in the main um, but we've also spoken for instance to Australian banks mainly because we want them to understand what we're doing as a precursor to us knocking on their doors in Australia um, as we look at developing projects and opportunities there and we've got down to uh, a decent say um, fingers on two hands uh, type of number of banks for that process uh, which as I say we hope to close during December but that means that you know there's definitely an increase in interest from the banks they do definitely want to understand this sector better they like us because we've been frankly able to deliver what we said we were doing and you know they can they can see that this is a company who they would like to be engaging with so that they can understand this sector better. The other thing we've done is um, we've put, we've developed floors. So what we try to do is be much more technically um, advanced. So from the revenue perspective, what we do is we tend to stack revenues. So what we've done is rather than just being connected to the distribution network, which is what we were originally with our assets, uh, we've looked at ways that we can enhance the level of income that we can get from our assets. And we're currently commissioning a 100 megawatt hour battery, which is the largest battery in Europe to be connected onto the transmission system. Um, and that battery is also the first battery in the world to be able to provide um, the ESO, the National Grid's um, Transmission Operations Business, um, with reactive power services. Now, that's important because a lot of these services that were provided by carbon-based generation in the past as i'm sure you know david a lot of those services were basic basically byproducts of generating power using rotating pieces of machinery um, now that those uh, plants are being closed or have been closed down uh, there's a requirement for getting hold of those services from other um, assets and obviously they're traditional assets that have provided those services but what we've been able to prove is the batteries can provide the services using uh, sophisticated inverters which are uh, designed not just to do the AC DC conversions but can actually provide other services alongside that um, and work by working with the large inverter manufacturers in Europe that's what we're including in our in our um, assets so that we can do that. I was, I was going to ask you and you might not want to go into this but um we talked a lot about the on on the previous episodes about the various complicated income streams that batteries can generate um and it sounds like this this direct to transmission network battery you're talking about sounds like that maybe won't play in the traditional markets will it will it have different kinds of arrangements uh, means of generating revenue um no we will play in in traditional markets like the bm market and FFL market and things like that but obviously what you need to do to in ensure that you've got a you know you're going to get the best chance of having a higher revenue stream is to be able to play in as many markets as you possibly can so 
with the reactive power market, um, we've got this first contract that I was mentioning, which is, you know, a contract with National. I think it's over a, a, an eight-year period, so that gives us a run of eight years worth of of income from from the asset, providing a specific service. Then on top of that, we've got uh, because um, people like um, EDF and um, Centrica. Are, are looking for assets like the assets that we own to be able to help them with their trading. They're prepared to enter into floors and we've got um, floors that then help us effectively add another layer of income above the uh, reactive power income. And then obviously on top of that, we then have the merchant related income, which you'll be very familiar with, right? So what we do by doing, by layering the different sources of income, is that and then ensuring that a proportion of those sources of income is to all intensive purposes fixed uh, that obviously helps us a lot with getting a higher level of um, gearing than our competitors are able to get uh, because we can demonstrate to the banks that we've got that um, income over the over a period of years um, and they derive that comfort so that you know that's what we're doing and then with the other um, batteries as we build out were, for instance, we've got the first, uh, I think it's a uh, containment uh, pathfinder contract, which is going to be on uh, the next asset that we're building. That is a very important contract for operating uh, the grid because there's a lot of power that comes down from Scotland, as you nice people from Scotland will know full well because you're having to power all of us layabouts down in the south of England. And uh, all the power that you produce in, in the North Sea or in the various firths um, comes on shore and then it gets sent down on the existing lines. And um, quite often there's more power going down, down the lines than can be utilized at the other end, which means the lines then warm out up and then the people who are operating the uh, wind turbines get paid to turn them off, which is rather perverse given that you know, we need all this as much power as we can. So the idea is that this curtailment um, structure enables us to divert that power off into the battery so that it can then be stored and then released when it's required and demand is higher uh, later on. And again, for providing that service, there's, you know, additional uh, value to us. In, in typical Scottish fashion, I'm, I'm sure we get a good price for it, Nicholas. So don't worry too much about that. I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it? It's maybe good to look at maybe the, the wider market as well. So you you mentioned obviously early in your journey and, and speaking to these institutional investors and kind of finding a bit of a closed door, or certainly that they were kind of unwilling to maybe stump up a lot of cash in the beginning. Is that to do with the you know the age of the company? Is it to do with the risks in the market at that time? Um, you know, why, why do you think that was and do you think that's changed in the, the years since? It's undoubtedly because well, the age of the company was year naught one, whatever you like. It was, it was very, very young. Um, it's moving into a market um, which didn't really exist previously. I mean, I think you've talked, David's talked about, you know, opportunities to invest in listed businesses. Well, obviously, the, even today, there's relatively few businesses that are focused entirely on storage and and you know it's it's a different market compared to I think what we're focused on. So it was all very early days. That point in time, you know, you you can persuade uh, friends and family to invest in an idea because more often than not, those are the ones who are prepared to take risks. Where you haven't got spreadsheets that drive how you can analyze that risk. You've got do you believe in the people who are doing it? Do they have the right expertise? 
to be able to achieve what they're looking to achieve and is what they're looking to achieve acceptable against the returns that you might achieve from supporting them you know so that's much more of a personal sort of decision than something um, that requires loads and loads of analysis from um, analysts and so on and then taken to investment committees and so on which is the next stage that you get to and that's when we got to that and obviously once you raise 220 million pounds of equity and you've invested that and that probably equates roughly to anything between 600 and 800 million pounds worth of capex investment and um, you know income of 50 million pounds and EBITDA of 20 to 30 million pounds or whatever it is you're you're looking at a business where the risks are completely different to what they were even three years ago so you know you it's like the old adage isn't it you know it's the more money you borrow from a bank the more you of a problem you become to the bank if you fail whereas if you don't borrow enough money from them they, they don't really care about you if you get my meaning so it's you know you you do get to a point where uh, they've made such significant investments that they, and they believe in the growth of the business that they're prepared to continue to invest. And, um, you know, we're very proud of what we've achieved with this business. We've got a fantastic team of people. Um, we've got over 150 people now. We're um, adding to them, you know, day in and day out. Huge. We've got 22 different nationalities. Um, we're trying to get more ladies. We've got quite a lot of lady engineers, which I'm very pleased about, we, you know, try to get a little bit le less less white males, as it were. And uh, we've got a really good spirited group of people who really um, believe in what we're trying to achieve with the company um, and believe what we're doing is is important. So I think, you know, combining all that with with the capital and everything else, um, it's we've got a we've got a very strong recipe for future success uh, for the business. Definitely. And David, on, on the, the investor side, I mean, have, have you seen changes in, in the market as to, to how people view these assets, um, how, you know, how much they're willing to stump up as well? As, as Nicholas says, you know, a, a fast moving market and there are clearly opportunities to be made. Has that changed the mindset, do you think? I think so. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we mentioned before the, you know, the listed funds, there are, there are only three, as, as um, Nicholas mentioned, um, sort of fully listed investment trusts specializing in utility scale storage and I think there'll be more um, but but it's it's a it, it's still a relatively niche area in some respects um, but there's there's definitely imp much improved knowledge we talked about the banks being educated I think you know the the investment banks that are running these processes and the investment communities that are funding the listed funds are, are, are much better in, informed and advised I think there's been stability in the or more stability in the various um, uh, markets and auctions, etc., that um, batteries are bidding into. Um, but it sounds like I mean, we've, <laughs> I've learned a new one today. Just um, speaking to, to Nicholas on, on about about the large battery project he's as an OB's um, going about to undertake. So, so there's there's some stability there. I think on the counter, on the flip side, there's um, maybe this is a question back to to Nicholas. Actually, we we've seen with particularly with traditional renewables investors um, over the last sort of month or so. There's been lots of um, uncertainty around. I mean, there's been lots of political stuff going on. Um, power prices have been volatile for a good while now. Um, cost of capital is kind of on the rise, it feels like. So discount rates are, are going up, which is impacting um, net asset values for the, for the core funds, or seems to be. Um, and tax rates are a bit uncertain, and governments have been talking about possibly extending... Um, 
uh, windfall taxes to to cap revenues for certain generators. So, so if you ask a renewables project developer and and, and uh, um, someone raising money for those projects, they'll say that it's, it's quite difficult at the moment. It's, it's there's lots of uncertainty. Um, is is any of that infecting the, the 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 battery storage kind of at a project level? Is is that infecting uh, that area, or is it a bit more insulated? Do you think? No, I mean undoubtedly the the area has been um, affected. I think the biggest effect, to be honest with you, is um, you know on foreign exchange. So we've seen uh, a serious deterioration in the value of the pound against the dollar. The dollar as well going up against other currencies, as we all know. Um, all the assets that we purchase, batteries, balance of plant, and the huge transformers and, um, you know, all the all the cabling and so on and so forth. That's all it denominated at the end of the day in dollars. So it does make a hell of a difference when there's the swings of between the foreign exchange side. So we have to keep, you know, abreast of, of what's going on there. We've got to... Um, make sure that we negotiate in order to um, try and continue to reduce those costs. As big buyers, though, in the market, you know, um, we hope that that will help. You know, we're looking at buying, I don't know, two, two gigawatts worth of batteries over the next three or four years. Obviously, those are the sort of numbers that make people sit up and, and want to, to deal with you. In the old days, if you bought, you know, 50 uh, megawatts, then people were dealing with you. But really, they don't bother to come and speak to you unless you're buying north of 500 uh, megawatts, I think, probably today. So, you know, we, we need to keep at the forefront in order to be able to try and keep those prices down. But there is obviously a limit. And, you know, you can look and see what happened to lithium. Uh, you can see, I think, what might be happening around uh, copper. Copper is going to be, uh, I think, another area of, of where there's going to be. And then, um, as I said, you know, just more generally on, on sterling to dollars. So that's really the area that's been the major impact for us. Then you've mentioned interest rates. Yes, interest rates uh, have been um, very difficult, again, to deal with recently. We don't expect there to be any um, reduction in, in interest rates in the, in the near future. And probably it looks like they'll go up to 6%, depending upon the, what the political implications are for them going up to that level. And there's always going to be a balance between what happens to the foreign exchange uh, relative to the interest rate. Um, so we'll have to see how that works. But at the same time, you've also mentioned that, you know, gas prices have been up. Gas prices have the major impact on the electricity prices and the, and the volatilities in the, in the market, which obviously drive uh, the cost of the services that we provide. So there is potential for an increase in the revenue alongside that. But the, the areas that we're most interested in at the moment are, frankly, the capex costs, because those are where we're really placing the bets. Without diving into your accounts too much, Nicholas, the returns to investors, you know, more widely in the sector, does this offer the kind of returns that, that people are looking for? Is it seen as safe or is it seen still as, you know, a bit of a risk but could pay off given the volatility in the market? Well, I can't, um, you know, as far as we're concerned, obviously we have to meet, you know, infrastructure plus type hurdles. Um, and uh, yeah, we're able to meet the requirements of our of our shareholders and you know we have a pretty rigorous system that through our investment committees and so on and so forth where they sit on them and um, and so on but we seem to be able to, to meet their requirements at the moment um, like everything in life there's a balance between growth and the returns that you get because obviously the bigger you get the more you're able to drive down the costs that I referred to at the same time the more important you become 
to your customers as a key partnership um, supplier rather than just as a sort of one-off SPV type supplier. And that's sort of where we want to go. So doing bigger projects and doing things that have uh, enabled our customers to gain more from the structuring around the balance sheet, off balance sheet or on balance sheet is is also helpful. And then, as I said, also adding on the, the software services. Um, I think, and David will be able to know more about this, but I think as far as the f- public funds are concerned, their uh, levels of returns are, uh, you know, I don't, I think they're probably, I guess they're probably six or eight percent, something like that, I, don't, I would think. Um, you know, those I think are more in line with where solar fund, solar um, development returns have been historically and where wind has been historically. So I don't think that they're going to be particularly out of kilter. And I imagine, you know, what we've got to see is, is I'd like really to see is that the government recognises the importance of storage because there's no point building loads and loads of wind unless you can uh, deal with that power more efficiently. And adding storage to the portfolio is extremely important for the UK. Um, and I think, you know, we've had Rishi Sunak stand up and his first question time and say that atomic and wind is the future, offshore wind is the future of the country, sadly didn't include the word storage. But I think that it's important that they need, that they do do that because they've got to recognize the importance that this um, asset class has on ensuring that we have a proper and resilient um, energy system as we transition. I think that's a message we've heard loud and clear through the podcast, but it's always nice to hear it again and hear people uh, yeah, typing yeah. in. Um, looking ahead then, you, you're raising money now. You're looking to increasingly take the Zenobi model overseas, I understand. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about your plans, I suppose, you know, next five years and beyond? And, and maybe to the market more widely where you see that going? Yes. I mean, you know, the core of the business is definitely in the UK. Um, you know, we've got lots and lots of opportunities in the UK, and I mentioned large numbers of gigawatts that we would expect to construct um, and own and operate here in the UK, providing the service. And these are all sites where we've already identified the locations and we've got grid connections and we've got uh, entered into, uh, you know, uh, options on the land, etc, etc. So these are all quite well advanced projects that we'll be looking to build on the the network infrastructure side. Um, We intend uh, to utilize what we've learned in the UK, which is a relatively deregulated market, to take that overseas, specifically into North America. And we are working in, in Australia. There are a numbers of different opportunities in the various states that are coming out where they're looking for uh, people to build uh, batteries. And, and we're working uh, with them and with the regulator in Australia, etc. So we see good expansion opportunities just in those two markets on the network infrastructure side. On the fleet side, uh, again, you know, we've got a large number, we're probably 2% of the of the buses in the UK um, or around about sort of 30, 40% of the um, total electrified buses in the UK that, that we have um, under our ownership with the, the services that I mentioned to you earlier. So there's still quite a long way to go here and supporting our customers in this market. So we'll carry on doing that. We'll tend to follow our customers into new markets like into North America, where, as an example, National Express um, has a fleet, which is, uh, I think, 1,800 buses in the UK, and they've got 30 plus thousand buses in North America that are school buses. So, you know, we've got a good relationship with them. We would hope that we 
be able to work with them to electrify depots in North America. And indeed, there are lots of other customers in Europe that we're working with or in the UK where we follow them into different markets as well. And then I mentioned Australia um, and New Zealand. Um, the, Sydney's got eight and a half thousand buses. That's the same number as London. And they've got probably, Australia's got the same number of buses, I think roughly as the UK has over around about 30,000 buses. So again, there's huge opportunities for us there. And as we've done the first major electrification of a bus depot in Australia, we want to be able to build on that in the different states. Um, and we've got buses running in New Zealand as well. And there's huge uh, opportunity in a much smaller market for us to, to work there. So there's a lot of things for us to do in our core areas. Then uh, I touched on Second Life, the Second Life business. As we get batteries back off buses, I think in about five years' time, we'll be getting you know, something approaching 500 um, megawatt hours of batteries back from uh, from uh, bus buses, which we own, we'll incorporate those into Second Life applications and be able to build that business as well. So we see there's a lot of different things, not just on a geographic expansion point of view, but also actually expanding the business into different industrial areas. And I haven't touched on commercial vehicles where, again, using our knowledge on the depot-based bus business, um, we're already working with large European OEMs to support them as they enter into new markets. And at the moment, that's an absolutely tiny market, but there's obviously one which will grow at vast speed, um, given the number of vehicles we're talking about. I'm going to close with one question, and I appreciate it is a big one, <laughs> but we have it on our sheet, and I, and I am interested, you know, given all we've heard so far on, on the podcast and from you, Nicholas, um, to David first, you know, are are we expecting to see a boom in investment in energy storage based on the, the kinds of financial instruments that we've talked today? My view is we will. Um, I think the the basic dynamics we've we've talked about many times on this on this series, and they are that you know increasing penetration of renewables um, on the grid requires storage. It's um, it, it's 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 fairly clear. Um, we don't really have enough at the moment, and the dynamics of um, electricity use and demand are, are going to change with EVs, etc., over the next ten fifteen years, and, and even more storage is going to be required. So I. I feel like uh, it's, it's not a safe bet, but um, it's it's a sensible place to um, think about investing. I think because we we do need more of this, and we're already seeing you know M and A levels are are up in in um, storage transactions. The interesting thing we haven't really touched on is the way they're changing from because there aren't too many operational assets out in the in the market, sort of secondary transactions, secondary M and A. Um, but what people are buying are earlier and earlier stage developments. Um, and that's a trend that that we've seen over the last few years. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. But you know, there is certainly a growing pipeline, um, which again we've talked about on this series. Uh, and I think there is going to be significant growth. And to you, Nicholas, the same question. Yeah, I mean, I think you know um, we well we believe that we we've got significant growth, and um, you know we're not going to be um, different to anybody else. I think people getting in into this market, there's going to be huge growth. There's a huge amount of deployment of government funds to support it, not just in the UK, but or rather less specifically in the UK, but in other in other countries as well. So there'll definitely be more of it. I think the um, issue is going to be maybe more that, um, you know, the West needs to build its own batteries um, if we're going to be relying on lithium 
as the and we're agnostic about the type of technology that we use but it seems at the moment lithium is is the best technology um, and the west needs to have more facilities to build these um, assets because undoubtedly the likes of Mercedes-Benz and BMW and General Motors and Ford and so on will get to the front of the queue to buy batteries to electrify uh, vehicles. And um, storage can look a pretty um, second place to, to those as far as the, the, mar the storage market is concerned because of the huge volume that those um, customers are, are able to um, be able to place with, with the suppliers. So I think it, it's needed. Um, I think that um, we need to have that capability in the West and not rely on so much as we have done on the Chinese to supply our needs. Um, and if everything aligns a bit better than it has been, um, then I can't imagine why there wouldn't be a, a very strong build out of these assets uh, to support the, the grids. That's a great place to leave it and plenty more to pick up on, on the manufacturing, the circularity, the sustainability of batteries, all topics we want to touch on further in future episodes of the Megawatt Hour. That brings us to the end of this installment of the Megawatt Hour. Thank you once again to my co-host David, to Nicholas for joining us from Zenobi, and to producer Amber. Thanks also to you for listening. You can let us know your thoughts through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. Every week, the Energy Voice team get together to highlight the important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. If you've not already, please do subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen out for more episodes of the Mega Hour coming your way very soon. I've been Andrew Dykes, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.